When was the first time that you heard about sex? How old were you? Where were you? Who told you? My guess is none of us can forget. I know that I will never forget. And even if I did forget, my dad would never let me, all right? I was eight years old. We were on the way home from my grandma's house. It was just my dad and my brother and I. I'm a twin, so I have a twin brother. It was just the two of us and my dad. And my parents had been starting to feel like maybe it was time to start to have some of like the talk with us, right? Uh, And we started asking questions. So my dad decided to take this opportunity to explain sex to us briefly. Just the stuff we needed to know at that age, at at the age of eight, right? So like how sex works, what's kind of happening, that's how babies are made, it's a special thing, all that jazz, right? And my brother and I, I have a twin brother, by the way, side benefit of being a twin is you never have to have these super awkward conversations by yourself. At least you have a pal sitting next to you, it's like, what? So my dad's explaining this and we're like, like what like what's happening this is so awkward this is so weird and we I don't I none of it you know we didn't know what to say and then all of a sudden I realized I was a little confused about something I needed to clarify some things all right so I decided to break the silence and say to my dad wait 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 hold on hold on hold on you're telling me that the man takes his penis off and gives it to the woman to put in her vagina Now, maybe this was my fault. I think it was probably my dad's for not explaining clearly, right? Luckily for me, I re- and all the 10-year-olds in the room are just like curling, and they want to like roll out of here so bad. And I'm so glad that they are in here with us this morning. But luckily for me, I realized, I found out that sex doesn't involve anyone taking off any body parts, which is nice, right? So what's happening in sex? Like, we, Hopefully I don't need to give any biology lessons today in terms of what's happening, but there's more to sex than just that, right? So I think before we kind of walk into some summer heat, I think there's probably two definitions of sex that are kind of floating around that are probably worth clarifying before we continue. So the first definition of sex, I think, is culture's definition of sex. And this definition of sex, it's the one that a lot of us kind of inherit. It's the one we see in uh, movies and we hear in music and we talk, we maybe hear about it at school or with our friends or whatever. It's culture's definition of sex. And I think it's something like this, that sex is purely uh, recreational. It's between two people and their bodies. It's almost like physical play. Like it's just sex, right? Like what's the big deal? And, uh, and with, with sex, it's fun, it meets biological needs, and as long as it's between two consenting adults, we should do it however and whenever we want. And the church, what we often do is we kind of come alongside culture's definition of sex. We don't really question it at all. We just kind of put a bunch of rules around it. And we say, like, don't do this, don't do that. And then once you're married, you can participate in this fun thing that meets simple biological needs. And as long as it's consensual, it's great, Right? And so for people who don't follow Jesus, and for some who do follow Jesus, this whole thing seems like super whack. It's outdated. It's traditional. It doesn't make any sense. So they're like, you know what? I'm going to do sex however and whenever I want. And kind of separate from this culture's definition of sex and kind of the church's response, often I think we have God's definition of sex. It's the definition of sex that we see in Scripture. It's the definition that Jesus would have used to define. And we see it right in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 2. It's the institution of sex. The word that is used to describe sex is this Hebrew word, echad. Everybody say echad. You speak Hebrew. Look at that. 
And ekad is this word used to describe when two separate things come together to become one. So in the case of sex, ekad is used to describe these two separate bodies that are coming together to become one flesh, like literally one flesh, a fusion at like the deepest level. So they were disconnected and now they are connected. And sex is the expression of that fusion and of that connection at the deepest level. Pastor Tim Keller, he says that sex is designed to be a way of saying to someone else that I'm giving myself to you fully, exclusively, and permanently. So in this way, our sexuality, it actually points beyond itself to relationship and commitment and joy and celebration. And it, and it points to something deeper and more expansive. See, it's, sex is a model. It's a signpost that points beyond itself to the ultimate destination that is complete and ultimate connection with God. Do any of you have a, a memento or a trophy, an article of clothing, a pair of shoes or something that you know you should get rid of, but you just can't seem to get rid of it? Like it has special significance to you and you're holding on to it and you've been holding on to it for years? Yeah? Uh, what I want you to do is... Uh, if uh, you're watching online, I want you to drop in the chat. If you're here with us this morning, I want you to look to the person next to you. And what is something that you just cannot seem to get rid of? A memento, piece of clothing, article, you know, a pair of shoes or whatever. Uh, Torin is a hoarder, so I know he's going to have plenty uh, to look to the person right or left and share. But I want you to share what's one thing you just can't seem to get rid of. All right, so uh, after we're done sharing our deepest, darkest secrets, the thing we can't get rid of. So growing up, I had a, like a trophy case, shelf thing in my room, right? And when I, when I grew up, when I got married, my parents, like they kicked me out of the house. They were like, take this stuff. They put it in boxes. They're like, here, it's yours. Get it out of our house. So I had two options. I could throw it away or I could keep it in the storage space that I didn't have when we moved into our tiny little apartment when I got married. So I kind of did a hybrid of the two. I kept some and I threw away others. One of the things that I just could not get rid of, I just couldn't get rid of it, was this. We have a picture of it, if you can't see. You're like, do we have a picture? There it is. Yep. Yeah, I know. You're like, what is that? This is one of the most terrifying sculptures you have ever seen, I promise, okay? It is also the trophy that was awarded the King of Chano Lake State Park Franklin Central Flashes Cross Country Camp my junior year of high school. All right, we, every preseason, we'd go away for a week of camp, and we did this competition, and it was the king of camp competition, and it, put, it combined, like, all your running times, obviously, and then, like, little games and sports and stuff into this point system, and whoever had the most points at the end of the camp, they were awarded king of the camp. And because king of the camp, you got a trophy. And the trophy every year was assembled by the coaches throughout the week from trash that they found around the camp that week. So the, one of the years, that's right, I'm a two-time champ. One of the years that I won, uh, our coaches found uh, a Barbie that had been dismantled by some psychotic five-year-old who took the body off of it and just left, left the limbs and the head. And then they gave it a body with this stick. They gave uh, this person a little uh, sunglasses thing as a tail. Uh, they wrote king on 
on the bottom, but it's separated just K-I and then N-G. But they even invested, a li- they gave her some bling bling too, which is nice. Uh, and then they even invested a little uh, keychain that they bought to put on the front. And you're like, you are insane. Why can't you get rid of this? It's this raggedy, old, disgusting, disturbing trophy. Like, why do you still have this? And I know it's raggedy, and it's old, and it's disgusting, and it is disturbing, like very disturbing. But it's more than a trophy to me. Like, this thing points beyond itself to to the week of camp that I had in high school and my awesome teammates and my coaches. It points beyond itself to just my time in high school with my teammates and my coaches. It points beyond itself even to just running and all the experiences and the opportunities and the relationships that it's given me over the years. You see, it's a trophy but it's more than a trophy. And you guys all have the, I'm going to set this down because nobody wants to look at this uh, all morning. You all have these things, right? You shared with each other, these things that are more than what they are, things that point beyond themselves to celebration and joy and commitment and relationship. They point to something deeper and more expansive. You see, sexuality, our sexuality is one of these things. Our sexuality points beyond itself. It's a model, it's a signpost that points to a destination. This morning we begin our new series in the Song of Songs. It's titled Summer Heat, right? It's this idea that sexuality and spirituality are so intertwined that they're impossible to separate. The Song of Songs is this collection of poems in the Old Testament. It doesn't prioritize the physical over the spiritual, nor does it prioritize the spiritual over the physical. It just says that the two belong together, that they can't be separated like body and spirit, sexuality and spirituality. Now, before we continue into some summer heat, and trust me, it's going to get hot in here, all right? Uh, Before we do that, I want to just establish a couple of things to kind of keep in our minds, to kind of uh, supplies for our journey over the next six weeks, okay? A couple of things, and the first is this. Whether you are sexually active or celibate, whether you're straight or same-sex attractive, whether you're married for 20 years with a thriving sex life or you're newlyweds with a struggling sex life or vice versa, or uh, whether you are single or divorced, whatever, you, we are all searching for connection and intimacy. And so we are all in some way sexual. And just like our spirituality, our sexuality, all of us is broken and in need of redemption. And God wants to redeem us. The second thing is this. That we, God has created each and every one of us to be sexual, to reach out for connection and intimacy. And so we're aware that when it comes to sexuality, this is sensitive ground. We all have a sexual story. And for many of us, that story involves pain. When we think of our sexuality, we feel damaged. Whether we have received damage or whether we have inflicted damage, we are in need of healing. And God wants to heal us. And third and finally, for too long, the church's message regarding sexuality has been reduced to just a simple list of don'ts. Don't watch porn. Don't masturbate. Don't make out. Don't sleep around. Don't have sex before marriage. Don't, don't, don't. And the result has been that there's this implicitly negative view of sex that has sort of been cultivated in the church. If you grow up in church, sex is bad. Sex is don't. But that's not where the scriptures start. The scriptures start with a positive command regarding sexuality to do, to be fruitful and multiply. You see, our sexuality is something that is a gift 
from God. It's something that's meant to be enjoyed, and God wants to help us enjoy that gift. Our sexuality is something that needs redeemed, something that needs healed, and is a gift to enjoy. Enter the Song of Songs and our next six weeks spent in it. So the Song of Songs, it's this book. Some of you may know it as the Song of Solomon. You can call it whatever you want, Song of Solomon or Song of Songs. For a long time, people thought it was written by Solomon. Not so much anymore. So your Bible may say one or the other. We're going to call it Song of Songs, but it doesn't matter. As long as you know, it's that book kind of in the middle of the Old Testament that's a series of love poems. That's right. You heard me right. I said love poems. It's not really a record of events between these two young lovers. It's actually like a series of love poems, and they're reflecting on like just how glorious it is to be in love. And this stuff, if you've not read it before or if you've read it before and you, it was a while ago, let me remind you, this stuff is intense. It is descriptive. Some would even call it like erotic love poetry, okay? And if you're like, oh, just for example, uh, traditional Orthodox Jewish males, for some, in some circles, they weren't even able to read the Song of Songs until the age of 30. 30! Torn last week was like, we're going to keep this series 1980s PG. This stuff is like PG-30, all right? Until you're 30, you need like parental guidance, okay? It's intense and it's descriptive. And if you're like... How bad could it, or you know, how intense or descriptive could it get? You know, it's in the Bible. Let me kind of demonstrate for you, all right? So what we're going to do is we're going to do a little exercise. I'm going to read three different poems from three different people three different times. And I'm going to read these three. And then at the end, we're going to do a little guess. You're going to guess which one is in the Bible, which one is in the Song of Songs, all right? Are you ready? It's going to get hot. We have a water fountain out, out the back. And if you need that, go for it. Here's the first one. Lock it in. Oh, it's good. Oh, wow. All right, first one. Your love has penetrated all within me, like honey plunged into water, like an odor which penetrates spices as when one mixes juice. All right. That's number one. The second one, here we go, number two. You are slender like a palm tree, and your breasts are like its clusters of fruit. I will climb that palm tree and take hold of its fruit. Oh, your breasts are like grapes. You had no idea you were going to hear breasts so many times at church this morning. All right, here's the, here's the third one. All right, the third one. You won't want to go anywhere. In the lap of luxury, laying intertwined with me. Touch my body. Let me wrap my thighs all around your waist. All right, so if you think it was number one, the first poem I read, you think that's the one in the Bible in the Song of Songs. Why don't you raise your hand if you think it's number one. All right, hands down. If you think it was number two, the second one that I read, if you think it was number two, raise your hand. All right, hands down. And if you think it was number three, the third poem that I read, raise your hand. All right, hands down. The third one, it was not the third one. The third one is actually Mariah Carey, Touch My Body. <laughs> we had a lot more people in first service think that one. I said, wow, we really don't have a lot of Mariah Carey fans in here because they would have picked out those lyrics. Uh, the second one, or sorry, the first one, it's not the first one. The first one is actually an Egyptian uh, love poem written at the same time, but by a different person in the same genre as Song of Songs, but it's not the Song of Songs, not in the Bible. The second one, the second poem is in the Song of Songs. Chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, you were slender like a palm tree, all that stuff, right? And you're like, wow, that's the NLT, okay, so if you go looking in the NIV, it's not in there, it's more modern sounding. Like I said, this stuff is intense. It's descriptive, right? And if you're like me, you realize this, and you're like, well, what is it doing in the Bible? Like, what is love poetry doing in the Bible? Great question, right? 
there's kind of two ways that uh, we've answered this, that uh, people in the past have thought and interpreted and thought of the Song of Songs and kind of its place in the Bible. So the first way is kind of the more traditional way. It's maybe the way that you have always thought about it or the way that you were taught to think about it and kind of read it. The first way is um, by reading it like, like allegory or allegorically, which is just a fancy way of saying that the meaning of the, of the book of the Song of Songs is really different. It's different than the surface one. So like lips don't really mean lips. Kissing or breasts don't really mean kissing or breasts. It's all like a metaphor. It's all a symbol to describe Christ or God's love for and commitment for Israel or for later Christian traditions, Christ's love for the church. Or maybe you've even read it as like God's love for you personally. It's allegory. It's symbol. It's metaphor. Now, this is, this is not necessarily the wrong way to read the Song of Songs, okay? I'm not, that's not what I'm saying this morning. What I am saying this morning is I do think it's wrong if that's the only way that you read the Song of Songs, or maybe even if it's the main way that you read the Song of Songs. If you read it only as this metaphor of God's love for you or God's love for the church or, or whatever it is, I think you, uh, you're missing out on, we are missing out on, on the full uh, depth of what the Song of Songs can offer us. And I think often we read it as allegory, we read it as metaphor, because uh, we kind of have a a little bit of a a different view of what the Bible actually is. You see, the Bible is not an ethical handbook. That's not really what it is. A lot of us, we we approach the Bible like it's this ethical handbook. It's a list of like do's and don'ts. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. But that's not what the Bible is, essentially. There is some of that in there, but the Bible, the scripture is essentially, it's a collection of writings, of law and letters, and poetry, and narrative. And oftentimes what we do is with the the stuff like the poetry, the stuff like the narrative, like Song of Songs, we think it doesn't really have any spiritual significance. We think it's kind of like this veneer that's kind of covering up the real stuff. It's like uh, the poetry, like in the Song of Songs, is kind of like the milk, and you just got to dig deep and get to like the real spiritual stuff. You got to get to like the meat of it, right? And kind of implicit in this maneuver is this way of seeing, and this is what's important. And what, we, what we're really doing when we do that is we're seeing the world in this way, right? We say, well, the spiritual is more important than the physical. And even more fundamentally than that, we're saying they're separate. We're saying that the physical and the spiritual are separate things. But what if the spiritual and the physical, what if one is no better or more important than the other? What if the two are so closely related that they're impossible to separate? I think that this is why the Song of Songs matters. I think this is what the Song of Songs teaches us, is that phys- the physical, our physical lives and our spiritual lives are so closely intertwined, and our sexuality is an important, important part of that. And I think you miss that unless you kind of read it the second way. The second way. So I said there was two ways, right? The first is allegory. The second way is to read it literally. So lips really mean lips, and kissing or breasts really mean kissing or breasts. Now, this has always been a possibility, but in the last like 100 years or so, most biblical scholars and church leaders have read the Song of Songs this way, as actual love poetry. Not just like metaphor, not just allegory, not just a way to describe God's love for us, but as a way for us to recognize that God cares about our physical lives. God cares about our sexuality. If you hear one thing this morning, hear this. God cares about your sexuality. And so uh, what we do is 
uh, with this view in mind, with this conclusion, with this literal reading of the Song of Songs, we can conclude that the Song of Songs is in the Bible because God cares about our sexuality. He's not, he's, God isn't surprised. God's not ashamed. Our sexuality is a gift that God wants to redeem, that God wants to heal, and that God wants to help us to enjoy. And that is why there's a collection of erotic love poems in the scriptures, in the holy word of God. And so it's this reading, this literal reading and understanding and perspective that we're going to kind of lean into over the next six weeks in this series and the Song of Songs. And what I think it will do is it's going to open us up to some really cool things. And one of those things that I kind of want to land the plane with this morning uh, is this, this relationship that is established between the Song of Songs and the book of Genesis, like the creation of the world and the creation of sex, right? There, it, when you read it literally, there's all these, rela- there's all these things that are, uh, the writer is clearly drawing from Genesis. It happens in a garden, and there's all these little tiny textual clues. But what's most important is this, uh, this moment, this relationship that, that is established between this Hebrew word, teshuka. Everybody say teshuka. Teshuka. Teshuka means desire, Okay. And it only appears three times in the entire Old Testament. And this word kind of functions as a bridge to kind of cement the relationship between Song of Songs and Genesis. So stick with me, all right? It's going to get a little technical. I'm going to go really fast uh, because for some of you, might be like, this, I don't care. This is kind of boring. But uh, for some of us, I think this really matters, this connection between Song of Songs and Genesis. All right? So in Genesis chapter 3, verse 16, God's created the, the world, right? Adam and Eve, male and female, and they're in right relationship with each other. They're in right connection. It's all great, right? But then everything goes south, like, you know, and they choose a different way, and sin changes reality, and they become disconnected with each other, and with God, and with creation, and God then explains to Adam and Eve, he explains to them the effects of this sin and this disconnection, right? So he explains to Adam, the male, some of the ways it's going to affect him, and then in chapter 3, verse 16, God looks, God looks to Eve, he says to the woman in chapter 3, verse 16, that your desire shall be for your husband, and that word desire is teshuka. Your teshuka, your desire, shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So we see that word one more time soon after that. In Genesis 4, we see it. And then only one other time in the rest of the Old Testament, we see it in the Song of Songs, chapter 7, verse 10. We see this word teshuka. We see this word desire. And these two lovers, they're reflecting on their love for one another and just how great it is to be in love. And the woman, in chapter 7, verse 10, she says... I am my beloved's, and his desire is for me. His teshuka is for me. You see that relationship, what's happening? The the author of the Song of Songs is like reimagining what happened in Genesis and the disconnect and the results of some of that sin. Now, no longer is the woman's desire for her husband. Now, the husband's desire is for her. In the Song of Songs, we see the effects of sin and disconnection be reversed and restored. Phyllis Tribal, she's a theologian. She says that the Song of Songs redeems a love story gone awry. The Song of Songs redeems a love story gone awry. This couple treats each other with tenderness and respect, and, and uh, they, they don't escape or exploit sex. There's no dominance. There's no subordination or stereotyping of either sex. There's just mutual love and mutual embrace and mutual enjoyment. You see, friends, the Song of Songs reminds us that God cares about our sexuality. 
And when we read it literally, this powerful connection with Genesis, we're reminded that God wants to use our sexuality as another one of the places where the work of redemption will be played out in our lives. Whether we're sexually active or we're celibate, whether we're uh, straight or same-sex attracted, married, divorced, single, whatever it is, the Song of Songs remind us that God wants to use our sexuality for the powerful work of redemption to be played out in our lives. You see, if we let it, sex can be one of the most important ways that we discover the heart of God. If we let it. The place where redemption and healing and enjoyment is played out in our lives. And I am so excited to go on this journey through the Song of Songs together as a church over the next six weeks. And I can't wait to see the ways that God is going to use the Song of Songs to invite us in to that work of redemption and healing and enjoyment. But before we get there, before I end this morning, I want to end with a little disclaimer, a little bit of a warning, some, an image to kind of keep in the back of our minds over the next few weeks because I think it can be so easy to sort of catapult our sexuality into like the most ultimate and important thing in our lives, especially when we're spending several weeks at church talking about it, especially when it feels like every song we listen to and every movie that we see and every single conversation that people are having has to do with something regarding our sexuality. But friends, just a disclaimer. Sex is not the chronic search for something that's missing. It is a persistent expression of something that has been found. It's not something that we use to just spice up our lives or improve our lives or something that we use as, to fill a hole that we need to complete our lives. Hear this, if you never have sex in your entire life, your life will be, can be just as complete as someone who has sex every day of their entire life. Sex is not a chronic search for something that's missing. It's the persistent expression of something that's been found. It's the expression of saying, I'm giving myself to you fully, exclusively, and permanently. And so I want to close by quoting from the cultural artifact that is the 2001 comedy classic, Zoolander. If you haven't seen this, that's all right. It's not the most appropriate film, probably. Uh, and if, but if you haven't seen it, it's all predicated on this idea that the more attractive you are, the more stupid you are, okay? So the main character, Derek Zoolander, he is a very attractive person. He's a male model, so he's very, very, very stupid. Like, very stupid. And uh, in the movie, they come to him, and they're like, hey, we want to build this school for in your honor. And he's like, all right, cool. And so the model, uh, or sorry, the architect of the school, they're going to design it. Before they build it, they want to show him the model, what it looks like, to get his approval and his feedback. You know, it's his school. It's in his honor, right? So um, they show him, in this iconic scene, they show him the model. And you can see here on the model the name of the school, of the, of the little model. It's, he's decided to name it the Derek Zoolander Center for Kids Who Can't Read Good and Who Want to Learn to Do Other Good Stuff stuff too. That's the name of the school, this guy. Like I said, very stupid. And uh, so what they do is the architect, they pull out this model, they unveil the, uh, the curtain thing, and they show him the model, and he looks at it. This is the scene. He's looking at it, and he's furious. Zoolander looks at the model, and he says, what is this? A school for ants? And then he says, <laughs> and then he says, how can the children learn how to read if they can't even fit in the school? And then, this is the best line, the most iconic line. He says, it needs to be at least, at least, 
at least three times bigger than that. Like as if the school, if it was this big, the kids could fit and they could read. But if this big, no, 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 too small, right? It's this like hilarious, iconic scene. And it's so hilarious because it's so stupid. And it's so stupid because Derek Zoolander has mistaken the model for the real thing. And we do the same thing all the time, I think. Like we mistake the model for the real thing. We mistake the signpost for the destination. You see, sex is not the most ultimate thing in our lives. It's not this thing that we need to do to complete our lives. Sex is a model. It's not even the model. It's a model, a signpost that points to the destination that is ultimate and complete connection with God. And so whether you have sex all the time or whether you never have sex in your entire life, this stuff matters. This series matters because you are part of a people in a place and a church that is, is deeply concerned with sex and deeply concerned with the way that sex points beyond itself to the way that we relate to God, the way that we find our most deep and ultimate connection with God, and the way that, that sex images the kind of relationship and commitment that God has to us. God says, I give myself to you fully, exclusively, and permanently, and sex helps us imagine what that looks like, whether we end up getting to participate or whether we don't. It helps image and give us an idea for what that looks like. So over the next few weeks, we must not mistake the creation with the creator. You see, friends, God is ultimate. Sex is not. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this morning. Uh, we thank you for the opportunity to come and to gather in your name and to worship. And uh, over this Memorial Day weekend, as we honor and celebrate uh, those who have given their lives for the lives that we get to live. And God, we thank you for the incredible gift that is our sexuality. This gift that you have given us to help and that you want to redeem and that you want to heal and that you want to help us enjoy. And so God, I pray over the next six weeks, I, I lift uh, this, this series up to you that you would help invite us and um, help us imagine the ways that you want to come and you want to move into our lives. You want to move into our sexuality and you want to redeem it. You want to heal it and you want to help us enjoy it. I pray those things all in the name of Jesus in whose name we gather this morning. To you be the hope and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.